views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Conversation reparations. This is Brother Jamoke Vitayo, the Southeast Regional Representative of Encobra, also serving as the male co chair of the Atlanta chapter of Encobra, and as your host for Conversation Reparations, a twice monthly radio news show about reparations and the reparations movement and the work of Encobra. So we're happy today to bring this next installment. Today being the, the day to honor um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. His actual birthday is January the 15th, but the third Monday of January is when the day is the day that is chosen, has been chosen to honor him and commemorate his life and work and to um, make it a day of community service. What are you doing to make the condition of our people a little bit better? So I thought that today would be a good day to just show some of the connections between Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the reparations movement. Um, There's a few videos floating around, and over the years I have been doing some research to um, just about Martin Luther King just to edify my own self and somewhat surprisingly kept coming across these quotes um, and these uh, sections of his writings and sermons where he um, spoke about reparations and so I've been collecting them and identifying them and we have uh, many quotes to share with you coming from his speeches coming from his sermons. Uh, We have quotes from uh, an interview that he did with a magazine. We have uh, 
and in his writings as well from his book, Why We Can't Wait, we have a quote. So we're going to go ahead and just begin to share some of that, and then we'll, we will discuss, you know, these quotes and um, the impact that um, Reverend Martin Luther King had as well as the civil rights movement because oftentimes we tend to focus on an individual and really an individual is is only effective as the organizing that they have built around them. And so we give thanks for not only Martin Luther King but for the SCLC organization, Southern Christian Leadership Conference that he built around him and the dynamic team of people that he built to work with him. Um, people like Ella Joe Baker and Reverend C.T. Vivian, Ralph David Abernathy, Andrew Young, Julian Bond, and many, many others um, that uh, worked with him and, and others that were inspired locally to get involved in, in making a difference in social justice in their own communities, in their own towns, in their own cities, in their own states. So, but today is a day where we, we focus on one of those people who really made some serious sacrifice and really was very passionate about this work of social justice for people of African descent. Uh, often tell people, people who talk about the, the goals of the movement were around um, jobs or, or integration and things like that. And, I, and in my research, I say that if you really listen closely to the uh, platforms of and the speeches and writings of Martin Luther King, you will see that the, the goal, the ultimate goal was freedom. And so I just want you to marinate on that, on freedom was the ultimate goal of where he saw his movement going. So let's play the um, first clip. Um, it's a short clip of Martin Luther King in his own words. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. All right. So that video clip, we don't know the exact location, but what, from what I have um, surmised from watching several of those videos is that this was uh, him going around in the rural south and speaking to different groups around the Poor People's Campaign and, and um, informing people and, 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 I guess, inspiring people to consider attending, coming to Washington, D.C. for the Poor People's Campaign. We know that that was the last major 
campaign that he was working on before he was killed, and uh, he was assassinated on April the 4th of that year, and his staff decided to go ahead and move forward and still have the Poor People's Campaign uh, in Washington, D.C. And so that speech, that clip was from one of his um, uh, rallies, I guess you could call it, or, or presentations that he made uh, in the community prior to that campaign in Washington, D.C. Many people don't know a lot about the Poor People's Campaign. They created something that they call Resurrection City. Resurrection City was actually poor people just camping out on the lawn for for weeks, I believe, and until it went on for months uh, in Washington, D.C., and they set up a community health clinics. They set up uh, places where people could get their uh, hair cut and things like that and some basic services attended to and just set up camp right there in Washington, D.C. until the United States government addressed the issues of poverty in this country. And so, again, in his last days, uh, last years of his work, he had definitely began to shift the focus more on economics, uh, economic justice, and he even uh, spoke about um, socialism, even though he he didn't. Uh, I have to say I don't think he say he ever fully fully pushed socialism. However, he did um, challenge capitalism, and he did you know begin to say that you know socialism is something we need to um, consider or look at or you know become more familiar with. So let's go to. Another uh, quote, um, another excerpt. This comes from his last sermon that he did um, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Uh, the title of this sermon, a whole sermon, if you want to listen to it, is very eloquent. It is called Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. We're just only going to play an excerpt about it where he speaks to the issue of reparation to do right. Now that is another myth that still gets around. It is a kind of over-reliance on the bootstrap philosophy. And there are those who still feel that if the Negro is to rise out of poverty, if the Negro is to rise out of slum conditions, if he is to rise out of discrimination and segregation, he must do it all by himself. And so they say the Negro must lift himself by his own bootstraps. They never stop to realize that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. The people who say this never stop to realize that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. But beyond this, they never stopped to realize the debt that they owe a people who were kept in slavery 244 years. In 1863, the Negro was told that he was free as a result of 
the Emancipation Proclamation being signed by Abraham Lincoln. But he was not given any land to make that freedom meaningful. It was something like keeping a person in prison for a number of years and suddenly discovering that that person is not guilty of the crime for which he was convicted. And you just go up to him and say, now you're free. But you don't give him any bus fare to get to town. You don't give him any money to get some clothes to put on his back or to get on his feet again in life. Every code of jurisprudence would rise up against this. And yet this is the very thing that our nation did to the black man. It simply said, you're free. And it left him there penniless, illiterate, not knowing what to do. And the irony of it all is that at the same time that the nation failed to do anything for the black man, through an act of Congress, it was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. Not only that, it provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, the years unfolded, it provided low interest rates so that they could mechanize our farms. And to this day, thousands of these very persons are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies every year not to farm. And these are so often the very people who tell Negroes that they must lift themselves by their own strength. It's all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. We must come to see that the roots of racism are very deep in our country, and there must be something positive and massive in order to get rid of all of the effects of racism and the tragedies of racial injustice. All right. Again, that is an excerpt from Reverend Dr. King's last sermon delivered. This was delivered as a, as a Passion Sunday sermon at the National Cathedral, which is Episcopalian Church in Washington, D.C., on the 31st of March, 1968. And actually, it's actually profound note as we connect the dots that March 31st, 1968, was also the day when the Declaration of Independence was signed for by the um, those gathered at the gathering for the Black National Conference convening that created the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa. And even in that document, on March 31st, 1968, there was a call for reparation and separation. So we we want to be um, 
And it's very interesting as I was preparing for this presentation today and I was looking at the quotes and I was realizing how there was several themes that he continued to reiterate the bootstrap philosophy. Uh, and even now you hear a lot of people saying that, you know, um, we don't need reparations. We just need to support our own businesses or we just need to do certain things ourselves and things like that. And I think that people don't really understand the depth of what has happened to us as a people and even what continues to happen to us as a people. And so, yes, there are things that we can do to improve our financial situation and improve our situation as it relates to education or to housing or to health care and the justice system. But there's actually a real debt that this country still owes us, no matter what we do in terms of our own internal uh, self-repair that work that we may do. So you'll hear this theme repeated in several of these clips, the, the theme around how the, uh, using the example of how the United States government gave millions of acres to uh, European peasants, we called them, um, in the West and the Midwest of this country, uh, and how not only did they give them land, but to support them, they also built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. He says not only that, they gave them county agents so that they could um, have people that went out into the farms and helped them to be even more uh, successful in their farming methods and knowledge. And, and, then, and, and then ultimately he says that um, years later, some of those same farmers or descendants of those farmers get paid millions of dollars not to farm by federal subsidies. And then these are the same people uh, who say that we should be pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps when, when the government clearly used its economics to support them. And even when we talk about reparations, we should mention also that uh, not only were we left um, penniless and, and without any type of um, recompense or reparations restitution after the enslavement period ended. They, they actually gave back land to the Europeans um, who were the um, plantation owners and land owners in the South who they had uh, promised to give to us when well, I promised they actually did begin to give some of those parcels of land to formerly enslaved Africans in what was called Sherman's Field Order 15, uh, up to 40 acres and a, and a mule and resources. And so, and then that land that was given was subsequently taken back. Uh, so it's important to note that, you know, reparations actually have been paid, so it's been paid to Europeans, uh, Americans, and not to us yet. So let's see here where we want to go from here. All right. One of the things that many people we get inundated with during the, the season of Martin Luther King is his I I have a dream speech, and even we should put question marks, uh, uh, air quotes around it. I have a dream speech because the I have a dream part of the speech we know historically was not uh, included in his speech. He was not planning on going there. That was sort of an impromptu that he went and 
went off into that part. Again, another speech uh, theme that he had practiced in Detroit and, and I believe maybe some other cities as well. And he was encouraged to to move to that I have a dream part of uh, of his speech or to incorporate that into his speech and he did um, the beginning of the speech though because it's the last part of the speech that's emphasized uh, the speech is about 20 minutes it's the last part of the speech that's emphasized that I have a dream but we think that it's important to look at the first part of the speech because he clearly centers this speech around slavery and what has happened and what hasn't happened since slavery ended and again this call for a, a check uh, from the from the government so let's listen to the first part of I have a dream speech that many of us don't hear as often as we hear the latter part to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. One hundred years later, the, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity 100 years later the, the negro is still languished in the corners of american society and finds himself in exile in his own land and so we've come here today to dramatize the shameful condition in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men Yes, black men as well as white men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note 
insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. So again, we have the metaphor of this check. We have the, 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 and again, what I mentioned earlier is one of the key themes of freedom and justice. I think in that speech, it really centers it around justice. And we know that reparations is a demand for justice. And, and that is really what King is referring to, is economic justice that we are owed as a people. Um, given what we have gone through in this country. So I know we're coming up towards a break. I'm going to go ahead and read an excerpt from one of his books. Um, always um, personally work on, like I said, I think it's important for us to learn more and more about Martin Luther King. We need to note that he wrote five books. But there's also a book that I had the blessing of getting when I was in college and still use on a regular basis. It's called A Testament of Hope, the essential writings of Martin Luther King, Jr., edited by James M. Washington. And this book is, I don't know, about 800 pages and has, um, as it has sermons, it has articles, it has interviews, it has excerpts from his books, uh, speeches that he, uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King. And I think it's important to read his actual works. We hear a lot of people telling us about Martin Luther King. I think that the, the best thing for us to do to learn more about Martin Luther King is actually read his writings, read his sermons, to read and or listen to uh, his sermons, read his books. So this is from one of his books entitled Why We Can't Wait. And he says, quote, people consider the fact that in addition to being enslaved for two centuries, that black folks were also robbed of wages of toil, for toil. And he goes on to say, no amount of gold could provide an adequate compensation for the exploitation and humiliation of the Negro in America down through the centuries. Not all the wealth of this affluent society could meet the bill. Yet a price can be placed on unpaid wages. The ancient common law has always provided a remedy for the appropriation of the labor of one human being by another. This law should be made to apply for American Negroes. The payment should be in the form of a massive program by the government and special compensatory, compensatory measures compensatory measures, which could be regarded as a settlement in accordance with the accepted practice of common law. 
such measures would certainly be less expensive than in, than any computation based on two centuries of unpaid wages and accumulated interest. I am proposing, therefore, that just as we granted a GI Bill of Rights to war veterans, America launched a broad-based and gigantic Bill of Rights for the disadvantaged, our veterans of the long siege of denial. So that is, um, again, I wanted to show this to show people, I think, to make the argument that it's not just this one quote that people hear, it's not just a bounce check. But you can see there we've we've sh we've given you excerpt from his sermon, we've given you excerpt from a speech, given you excerpt from his writings, and we're gonna we still have some more yet to share. But right now I know we are coming at the break time, so we'll go ahead and do our break at this time. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts and live program scheduling. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All right, all right. We're back with conversation reparations. We're discussing the advocacy uh, in writing and words and sermons of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and his support for reparations, for preparatory justice, for economic justice. And this interview, this interview, I'm just going to read from, from this is a preface to the interview. It says, this interview with Dr. King is one of the finest that we have in print. He discusses a wide range of topics, but was especially insightful about his own religious and philosophical motivations for engaging in the struggle for racial justice. The head note written by the Playboy interviewers provide helpful insights into the King's daily routine and gargantuan responsibilities. And somewhere I read, um, okay, so this is a interview that was done by Playboy magazine, uh, and then when they did their interviews, they would not um, reveal who the writer was. And it's suspected, somewhere I read this, that the writer may have been Alex Haley who uh, conducted this interview. So, uh, again, we're going to um, move into the middle of the interview, and uh, there's a question by the interviewer, and the question says, along with other civil rights leaders, 
you have often proposed a massive program of economic aid financed by the federal government to improve the lot of the nation's 20 million Negroes. Just one of the projects you have mentioned, however, the Hire You Act program to provide jobs for Negro youth is expected to cost $141 million over the next 10 years. And that includes only Harlem. A nationwide program such as you propose would undoubtedly run into the billions. King's response. What is it about the Negro? Hmm? Hello? Oh, that was my bad. I thought you was tell uh give me the cue to play the clip, my bad. Oh, oh okay, no, no, no. <laughs> All right. Uh so King's response is about fifty billion dollars actually, which is less than one year of our present defense spending. It is my belief that with the expenditure of this amount over a 10-year period, a genuine and dramatic transformation could be achieved in the conditions of Negro life in America. I am positive, moreover, that the money spent would be more than amply justified by the benefits that would accrue to the nation through its spectacular decline in school dropouts, family breakup, crime rate, and legitimacy. Swollen relief roles, rioting, and other social evils interviewer asked, do you think it is realistic to hope that the government would consider an appropriation of such magnitude other than for national defense? King responds, I certainly do. This country has the resources to solve any problem once that problem is accepted as a national policy. An example is aid to Appalachia, which has been made a policy of the federal government, much touted war on poverty. One billion was proposed for its relief without making the slightest dent in the defense budget. Another example is the fact that after World War II, during the years when it became policy to build and maintain the largest military machine the world has ever known, America also took upon itself through the Marshall Plan and other measures the financial relief and rehabilitation of millions of European people. If America can afford to underwrite its allies and ex-enemies, it can certainly afford and has a much greater obligation as I see it to do as least as well by its own no less needy countrymen. Interviewer. Do you feel it's fair to request a multi-billion dollar program of preferential treatment for the Negro or for any other minority group? King's response. I do, do indeed. Can any fair-minded citizen deny that the Negro has been deprived? Few people reflect that for two centuries the Negro was enslaved and robbed of any wages, potentially crude wealth, which would have been the legacy of his descendants. All of America's wealth today cannot adequately compensate his Negroes for his centuries of exploitation and humiliation. It is an economic fact that a program such as I propose will certainly cost far less than any computation of two centuries of unpaid wages plus accumulated interest. Within common law, we have ample precedents for special compensatory programs which are regarded as settlements. American Indians are still being paid for land in a settlement manner. Is not two centuries of labor which helped to build this country as real as real a commodity? And um, yeah, let me, um, 
read this last little section I have highlighted. The closest analogy is the GI Bill. This is still King speaking. The closest analogy of the GI Bill of Rights. Negro rehabilitation in America would require approximately the same breadth of program, which would not place an undue burden on our economy. Just as was the case with the returning soldier, such a bill for the disadvantaged and impoverished could enable them to buy homes without cash at lower and easier repayment terms. They could negotiate loans from banks to launch businesses. They could receive, as did XGI, special points to place them ahead in competition for civil service jobs. Under certain circumstances, a physical disability, medical care, and long-term financial grants could be made available. And together with these rights, a favorable social climate could be created to encourage the preferential appointment of the disadvantaged, as was the case for so many years with veterans. So here again, we have another example of King, even with a dollar amount to it now, calling for a massive program, federal program to address the injustice of slavery, the injustice of unpaid wages and labor and discrimination on people of African descent in the United States. And okay, we got another quote. Uh, this is actually from an article that was uh, published after he transitioned. It was something that he wrote, but didn't. It got um, printed. It was called posthumously, uh, and this is called a testament of hope this essay that he wrote, and we're just going to read a short excerpt from it. And he's talking about, he's starts out, he, he's talking about um, how people who are in a privileged situation uh, have to realize that in order for justice to come, they may be made uncomfortable, that things are, you know, that change is something that may not always uh, come in the form or the way that they like it. Um, and then he goes um, on to say, I'll read one the transition and go into the quote I wanted to read about reparations. It says, The comfortable, the entrenched, the privileged cannot continue to tremble at the prospect of change in the status quo. Stephen Vincent Benet. Had a message for both white and black Americans in the title of a story, Freedom is a Hard-Bought Thing. When millions of people have been cheated for centuries, restitution is a costly process. Inferior education, poor housing, unemployment, inadequate health care, each is a bitter component of the oppression that has been our heritage. Each will require billions of dollars to correct. Justice, so long deferred, has accumulated interest and its cost for this society will be substantial in financial as well as in human terms. And he says, this fact has not been fully grasped because most of the gains of the past decade were obtained at bargain prices. The desegregation of public facilities cost nothing. Neither did the election and appointment of a few black public officials. So again, you see him um, shifting and, and saying that yes, we made some gains around integration, 
desegregation, that those didn't really have an economic impact on the country like what he's now calling for. Um, So let's see here. Where we want to go. So one of the things I wanted to bring up also in terms of talking about Dr. Martha King, I think somewhat sometimes there's a, a little bit. Sometimes there's a people don't necessarily understand is his nonviolent direct action strategy, and it's very important that when we say nonviolent, we say nonviolent direct action because that was really the philosophy uh, or the tactic that he espoused. Uh, a lot of times you, you find the direct action left off and and the, there's an attempt to sort of um, make his ideas or his, his work um, sort of this passive uh, form of... of um, Resistance and nonviolent direct action is anything but a passive form of resistance. And so, one of the things that I, I came across this many, many years ago when I was um, doing work with SCLC and getting training in some of their um, teachings, and I was introduced to this, what was called the Six Steps of Nonviolent Direct Action. And I've been looking for this document and just recently found it. So I feel it's very important to share this because one of the things I think that's a challenge in our movement today is that a lot of young people or even older people sometimes will say, oh, well, I'm tired of marching or I'm tired of, you know, we tried that or that's, you know, that's old now or that's, you know, we, we do it differently now or whatever. And I think part of the reason, I know part of the reason why people say that is because uh, many of the marches, I won't say all, but many of the marches, or what we call marches today, uh, or even nonviolent uh, actions today, are not in the true spirit of King's Six Steps for Nonviolent Direct Action. Because one of the really key steps is the direct action, meaning that a person, uh, a, a person, city council person, mayor, or governor, or police chief, or CEO, whatever, or agency, or what have you, is identified as the problem in the community or what is causing pain or harm in the community. And the community then asserts itself and says, this is what we would like to see happen. And, and usually we they make that request of that um, entity which has the power to make the request, uh, grant the request, and oftentimes they, the, the request is ignored or is just said no or what have you. And then at that point is when the organizers go back to the people and say, now we're going to use direct action, and now we're going to boycott that business, and now we're going to um, sit in in City Hall and disrupt City Hall meeting until they're willing to sit and negotiate with us. And that form of direct action uh, is is what um, King was about, um, directly confronting. Uh, even now there's a march coming up on the 25th, and I'm not wanting to say anything bad about the organizers of that, but that's on a Saturday, and it's supposed to be around the impeachment of, of, Mar of, of, <laughs> impeachment of Donald Trump, or 45, and 
to me, again, it's a little bit misfocused. I think that if we were doing following King's strategy, it would maybe the focus would be perhaps at the White House, calling for him to resign, uh, uh, step down, or, or at the houses of the U.S. senators, particularly the Republican senators, to try to um, convince them, challenge them, negotiate with them to um, consider um, putting him out of office. So let me go over these six steps of nonviolent direct action. And so step one is information gathering. Identify the issues in your community and or school in need of positive change. To understand the issue or problem or injustice facing a person, community, or institution, you must increase your understanding of the problem. This is called information gathering, step one, information gathering. Your investigation should include all sides of the issue and may include formal research and, list and listening to the experiences of others. So, again, first step, gathering information on what is the, the problem or the challenge or the issue in your community and the school. The next step is step two, educate others. It is an essential to inform others, including your opposition, about your issue in order to cause change. The people in the community must be aware of the issue and understand its impact. By educating others, you will minimize misunderstanding and gain support and allies. This is a key issue, even as it relates right now to the reparation movement. And myself and others, we definitely continue to call for this massive public education that we have to do to for people to be truly supportive of reparations. They need to be more knowledgeable about reparations. Um, and so this is one of the things that we engage in even as we are on this show now. Step three, personal commitment. Check and affirm your faith in the philosophy and methods of nonviolent direct action. Causing change requires dedication and long hours of work. Meet with others regularly to stay focused on your goal. Prepare yourself to accept sacrifices, if necessary, in your work for justice. This is a very, very important step in the movement. Uh, I, I mentioned this at a meeting I was at the other day. It was a lot of people at the meeting, and sometimes, you know, you go to a meeting, and the first two or three meetings, it's a lot of people, and then the fifth, sixth, seventh meeting, the numbers start to drop off. And people have to make a, a commitment you know, to whatever the particular campaign is or the cause is. And, you know, even during those times, there were certain people that decided that they would be willing to be arrested. And other people said, I'm not going to be, I don't want to be arrested. So those people had other assignments. Um, some people said, you know, my my role is to, uh, is as a business person, I'll, I'll put some money into the, the bond fund so, so we can um, bail people out uh, who do get arrested. Uh, so people had different levels of commitment. Somebody might just pick up some of the activists and bring them to the site, you know. So, But it's very important that we have a process of evaluating our own personal commitment to different campaigns and to different um, to this work that we do, to this movement work. The next step is negotiation. Using grace, humor, and intelligence, confront the individuals who need to participate in this change. Discuss a plan for addressing and resolving these injustices. Look for what is positive in every action and statement 
the opposition makes. Do not seek to humiliate the opponent, but call forth the good in the opponent. Look for ways in which the opponent can become an ally. So again, step four is when we're, where the community makes its demand upon uh, whoever they're making the demand upon. And the idea is that there's a, a negotiation where the our strategy is not to to demean or, or to humiliate the uh, person who we see as an adversarial position, but really to win them over to to our cause, to our position. But that doesn't always go that way, and then that's when step five comes in, direct action. These are actions taken to convince others to work with you in resolving the injustice. Direct action imposes a creative tension into the conflict. Direct action is most effective when it illustrates the injustice it seeks to correct. There are hundreds of direct actions, including boycotts, marches and rallies, letter writing and petition campaigns, political action and voting, public art and performance. Um, we've seen other forms of direct action where young people have, have blocked streets, uh, blocked highways, uh, many different things to uh, uh, die-ins and many different things that um, people have come up creatively to show their um, to to bring those people to the table to to negotiate and so and then the last one is reconciliation nonviolence seeks friendship and understanding nonviolence does not seek to defeat the opponent nonviolence is directed against evil systems oppressive policies and unjust acts not against persons uh, and in the six steps for nonviolent direct action, you can find out more about them or some of the underlying philosophy of them coming from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail. So those, again, are the six steps. Information gathering, step one. Step two, education. Step three, personal commitment. Step four, negotiation. Step five, direct action. Step six, reconciliation. So these are the, the, the steps of nonviolent direct action that Dr. King laid out and used as an effective tool to make change in this country. And it still can be used as an effective tool if we use we follow these steps. And um, one of the things I also just wanted to mention, I guess, guess as an aside, in doing this research today, I came across the fact that um, when Jesse Jackson was running for office in his second time, 1988, he had in his platform uh, reparations for descendants of African-Americans, uh, for descendants of, for African-American descendants. And uh, I wasn't aware of that, so now, you know, we know that last year and, there, and still into this year as we continue to deal with the presidential race, that, that it was, has been raised in the Democratic primary around the issue of reparations and support for reparations and, and different people have shared to different degrees their support for reparations or not. So 
supporting reparations. I think I just saw recently today um, with um, former Governor Deval Patrick, African-American, um, was speaking negatively about reparations. And um, so, yeah, so we still have much more work to do, uh, education work to do around the issue of uh, reparations. But clearly you can see in the information that we presented today in his writings, in his sermons, in his speeches that that he called for if he was alive today, we know that he would be um, working on this reparation movement with us. Uh, he very clearly understood um, the importance of uh, economic justice. He clearly referenced slavery and, and, and segregation, income inequalities as a result of that. And so we give thanks on this day. Uh, also, we, we bring this full circle. I think that what I was hoping to see lifted up more during this year of King Holiday is is John Conyers. Since John Conyers transitioned, we did a whole show on Congressman John Conyers who transitioned this who transitioned in 2019. He was the author of the bill and advocate of the bill that made Martin King birthday a national holiday. So in addition to him being an advocate for many issues, um, reparations included, we know that he is also responsible for Martin Luther King's birthday uh, at the federal level um, coming into existence. So we want to again one more time say I say to our dearly beloved Congress President John Conyers who is rising in the ancestral world for the fact that we even have this holiday to take time to reflect on the life and works of Martin Luther King and his contributions to the African-American community, to the new African community, and to the world community as well. So we're going to go out with uh, one more uh, short video clip. Uh, in the words of Martin Luther King, this was, uh, I think, again, a speech that was said in 1967. Or, I'm sorry, an interview with NBC in 1967. Uh, a few months before he was assassinated. So we're going to hear from King. What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes' color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 19, I mean 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. 
and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. All right. So you've been listening to Conversation Reparations, a special program today honoring Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his contributions to economic justice and the reparations conversation. Just want to begin to plant a seed with you that our national convention, our 30th, 31st annual national convention will be held in Selma, Alabama this year from June 25th through the 28th. And you can go on uh, our website at, at cobraonline.org to find out more information about that. And as well, we will be in Selma for the Jubilee Bridge Crossing mem members of the of Cobra. And we will be all throughout the weekend in Selma, which is the last weekend in February, going into March 1st. And we will be there with uh, reparations materials. We'll be there on, on panels to talk about reparations. There's always a mock trial, which, which reparations is one, which is the issue of, of the mock trial. So we look forward to seeing you in Selma in end of February, going into the 1st of March, as well as we look to see you in Selma, June 25th through the 28th. So I just wanted you to begin to um, prepare for that. Uh, the theme for our convention is reparations today, what the youth didn't say, and we're really focusing on bringing youth groups and youth leaders to join with us in the reparations movement and to learn more about reparations and, and to deepen their support and activity around the reparations movement. And so, again, we invite youth groups to come or youth leaders to come to attend this, this very special Encobra convention this year. Again, my name is Jumoka Ifetayo. I can be reached, I can be reached to speak on your campus or at your school at 678-437-7882. Again, that's 678-437-7882. Uh, my email is reparationsj at gmail.com. Again, that's reparationsj at gmail.com. And again, you can find out more about our convention on our website at encobeonline.org and you've been listening and we want to thank our engineer brother Scotty Reed you've been listening to Conversation Reparations 
conversation reparations, conversation reparations. This might ignite the races and the Empire State. Cause I don't want a piece of the pie. Give me the entire plate. Trying in these dire straits. Dying at a higher rate, like inflation. But where poverty, I'm impatient. The system needs work, justice is the maintenance. Open up your eardrums, our unity is fearsome. I speak with a sincere tongue, I fear none. Anti-capitalism, I welcome criticism. So talk.